Pet cemetery, obligatory uh, bump for this story, Dave. I couldn't think of anything else. On a two-acre parcel along Military Road in unincorporated King County near Kent is a pet cemetery first established more than seventy years ago. And our historian in residence, Felix Bunnell, went there in search of history and instead found not only controversy, but a mystery. Felix is brought to us by Lake Washington Windows and Doors. Morning, Dave. You know, I often say this, but this time I really mean it. This is a complicated story with a lot of people involved. Let's begin with a mystery. Uh, The location is off of SR 516, just east of I-5, above the Kent Valley. If you dial the number on the sign in front of the Seattle Pet Cemetery, this is what you get. So it says they're temporarily closed due to vandalism. All right. Now, I was there on Monday. I didn't see any vandalism. The gate is wide open. In fact, the gate is just gone. The office is closed. There's a bunch of those UPS attempted delivery stickers stuck to the door. The lawn looks a little overgrown, not by much. Um, Inside the fence, there's hundreds of headstones with names on them like Pudge, Freckles, Tuffy Bell, and Sparky. These are cats and dogs. There's other animals, too, there, including a, a goat and a lioness. Some of these, the numbers, the pets were born in the 1930s. The earliest burials are from 1951. It looks like a regular cemetery, like you know, these flatheads. If you didn't look close, you'd think it was just a cemetery for, yeah. for who knows what. And it was founded by a couple named Dean and Nellie Marlatt about 70 years ago. And to walk through and read the inscriptions on the graves about people's closest friends or best friends, it's actually pretty touching. I found myself kind of moved. And there's an element of creepiness as well, right? It's kind of a, it's a, it's an it's interesting a mix. Yeah, but there's something about a pet cemetery that I think there's an additional element of creepiness. I can't quite define it. Now, until sometime this past summer, the cemetery and a pet crematory there were operated by a Canadian company called Gateway. They're gone. Since August, it appears that the owners of the property, this a couple named Julie and Steve Morris, have not been operating the cemetery either. So that's a mystery. It looks like it's abandoned. Now, I spoke to the Morris's attorney on Monday, a guy named Ian Morrison with McCullough Hill Leary here in Seattle. He said he wasn't authorized to speak on their behalf, but said I could email questions and he would check with them. I sent questions on Monday, heard nothing back. Now, what this might lead to is a contentious process earlier this year in which the Seattle Pet Cemetery was officially landmarked by the King County Historic Preservation Program. The Morrises objected to the process through their attorney, Ian Morrison, but it was landmarked anyway. So this is where it gets complicated and where the controversy comes in. In 2020, the Morrises applied for and received a permit from King County Department of Permitting and Environmental Review to allow construction of a cell phone tower in the pet cemetery. Well, when construction began in summer 2020, a cemetery patron named Julie Seitz, she had her beloved pets, uh, Black Labs, Lovey and Kuma, cremated there, and she visits often. She noticed right away she thought something wasn't right. We were very upset, and how could this happen? So then we looked into what kind of protections we had, And we realized, oh, my goodness, pet cemeteries are not regulated, but still it's an illegal land use action. But, you know, we wondered how could King County violate their own code? And then we've been pursuing them to do something about it. But they also violate Washington State Cemetery law. And we have humans buried here. Okay, there's a lot to unpack. There's a lot to unpack here. Okay, so first, as Julie Seid said, there are also human remains at the pet cemetery. We're going to come back to that. Uh, Second, pet cemeteries are not regulated in this state or county or by anybody. That's what inspired Julie Seitz to pursue the landmark designation. We're also going to come back to that. Now, the permit for the cell tower is a complex zoning issue we don't have time to go granular on. Short version is, Julie Seitz says the cemetery is zoned neighborhood business and not industrial. 
She says there's confusion in the public record about an adjoining parcel that was also owned by the Morrises. Julie went to King County DPER, you know, the building permit people, with this information two years ago. Now, Jim Chan, who runs King County Department of Permitting and Environmental Review, told me yesterday that they initially agreed with Julie that King County had indeed made a mistake in granting the cell phone tower permit. But in a letter dated a few days ago, the King County Prosecuting Attorney's Office now says Julie was wrong. This is Jim Chan yesterday. So at the time, shortly after the permit was issued, we thought that they were right. Our attorneys got involved. King County Prosecuting Attorney did an in-depth research along with our GIS group. Um, and they did come to the conclusion, no, uh, no, you guys were right all along. Both parcels were industrial. Uh, they, they were not neighborhood business through a reclassification that took place several decades ago. I understand now why attorneys get so much money doing yeah. land use stuff. Now, so I, what does that mean? If it's industrial, that means the cell tower is okay or it's not okay? It, it would be okay on the industrial parcel next door, but not okay on the neighborhood business parcel, which Julie Seitz contends that it is. So I talked to Julie yesterday after I talked to Jim Chan. She says her group's attorney is preparing a response to the new letter. She says some of the information cited by the prosecuting attorney's office is just wrong. Now, add to the King County landmark designation of the Pet Cemetery one more regulatory change. The Washington State Department of Archaeology and Historic Preservation in February last year officially designated that parcel of land as a cemetery in their database. That has its own ramifications as far as the permissibility of the cell tower is concerned. Now, all these agencies have been acting in response to the work of Julie Sides and her group that they've been doing. They, and they have, they have just one goal. We believe that over time, in time, the um, correct remedy is for the tower to be relocated to an appropriate location. And that is not here. Now, as promised, let's go back to the fact that pet cemeteries are not regulated here. Um, so theoretically, you could pay to bury your pet um, and have it interred, and then a few years later, the land could be redeveloped and that pet grave could just be taken away. There's yeah. no protection whatsoever. Because Julie Seitz was successful in getting a King County landmark designation, the Seattle Pet Cemetery is now somewhat protected, even though the owners didn't want that protection. So the historic preservation aspect is in some ways makes up for the fact that pet cemeteries are not regulated in the Evergreen State. So what does that King County landmark designation do for the Seattle Pet Cemetery and the markers and graves there. This is Sarah Steen with the King County Historic Preservation Program. You couldn't remove significant features and the, the markers were called out as significant features. You couldn't add buildings to that without going through the commission. So you can't really make any further changes. We also specified in the designation that any increase in the cell tower footprint or height is something that we're regulating. So that would have to go through the commission. So rather than Julia Seitz or someone else happening upon new construction there, the King County Landmarks Commission would have to review any proposed changes. Now, back to Julie's comment about the fact that there are indeed human remains at Seattle Pet Cemetery. This is because some people wanted to have their cremated remains, or that weird word, cremains, which I still feel weird saying, um, buried with their pets. Right. Now, the Washington State Department of Licensing manages an entity called the Funeral and Cemetery Board. They do not regulate pet cemeteries. Last year, they received a complaint from Julie Seitz about the pet cemetery, and they chose to not take any action. However, earlier this month, they reopened the case. This is DOL spokesperson Christine Anthony explain what's, explaining what happens next. We have an investigator assigned. They're going to try to work with the property owner to see um, what records they may or may not have. And after that, uh, depending on what records are found, it will either be referred to the Funeral and Cemetery Board 
or it'll be closed because we don't have any new information. Yeah, this story is just absolutely bananas. I thought, Dave, I'll do a little fluffy Halloween story. So yeah. I'm busy this week with the radio play we're doing tomorrow night. Instead, I spent the last few days on the phone almost constantly trying to track down all this information. Well, we keep coming back to, to Julie. Is she the only person complaining here? No, there's other Pet cemetery patrons, but there's not do really... Do they pay a, anything? They paid money to have those, their Originally, pets interred there. Yeah, <laughs> which, which with the promise of a cemetery, it's for eternity, right? It's not like you're paying a monthly rental well, to But obviously, there. the owners of the land can't afford to maintain it because you said it looked abandoned, so they're probably trying to make some money with the cell tower there, right? Well, I don't know. I mean, what does it take to maintain it? The, the licensing is pretty inexpensive. Well, you have to, you have to mow the there. grass. you got to go out there and mow the grass. And yes. they have, But there's room for new burials there. So up until August, this Canadian company was taking people's money to put human remains and people remains there. Oh, it was, so it's it was, not abandoned. It was an operation. No, no, it just looks abandoned the last couple months. Has the company said anything? The owners won't respond. The Canadian company's out of the picture now, but the owners won't respond to anybody. King County DEPR worked out, reached out to them, um, and they didn't hear anything and the state cemetery board has, I think. Anyway, it's, it's a very complicated story. So. Well, stay on top of it. If anything yeah. changes, you have my number, day or night, I want to know. And the very simple story, though, is the story of Dracula, which we're doing tomorrow night on our big live radio play That's, at 8 yeah, o'clock, yeah, right? We are. With all that rigorous rehearsal we've been doing for it, it's really going to pay <laughs> off with a, a gripping drama. Can't you move it to 6 o'clock? I really want to sleep <laughs> we can do uh, a for three, Friday morning. We could do a three-hour version of it, yeah. <laughs> extended, extended remix. We are going to have at least one more rehearsal, right? I hope so. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you were oh. great, though. You okay. were great. You're okay. Dracula. You yeah. don't need to rehearse your Dracula anymore. Oh, okay. Thank you, Mr. Director. Felix Spinell, all his features at MyNorthwest.com. This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien. The war in Ukraine seems to have brought us closer to nuclear war than anything since the Cuban Missile Crisis. So let's talk with someone who has dedicated her life to trying to prevent just that thing. Emma Belcher is the president of the Plowshares Fund. And for years, your group has been trying to eliminate nuclear weapons. What options do we have, though, when you have someone like Vladimir Putin who is openly talking about using uh, tactical nukes? What, what leverage do we have besides having our own nuclear weapons? Well, you're absolutely right that we're at a really dangerous point right now in times that we haven't really seen for the last 60 years since the Cuban Missile Crisis. And we've seen nuclear weapons really pierce the public consciousness in a way that we haven't seen um, after the Cold War and we were lulled into a false sense of complacency. Really, I think most people thought that nuclear weapons went away at the end of the Cold War, but as we're seeing and as you're pointing out now, they've sort of come back with a vengeance and we have in Russian President Vladimir Putin somebody who really wants to change the history and the narrative around Russia and is trying to use his nuclear weapons to change the position of Russia in the world. So we've seen that Putin has used nuclear threats to invade a sovereign country, to enable war crimes, to uh, bring about a humanitarian crisis and has even impacted the global economy as uh, many of us around the world, including here in the US, are really feeling. So what the problem is right now is the, the, the primacy of nuclear weapons in helping or Putin's hoping they will help him achieve his aims. So we're at a really difficult point. And I think, as you rightly point out, the potential for nuclear use is quite high. Then the question you ask is, you know, what can we really do about this? Well, right now, at this time, we need to do whatever we can, not only to support Ukraine in a way that brings about a favourable outcome for Ukraine, but we need to make sure that we're not 
by supporting, in the way we're supporting Ukraine, inadvertently pushing Putin into a corner uh, so that he feels that he needs to use these nuclear weapons. So right now, what we at my organisation, Plowshares, are doing is focusing on preventing nuclear weapons use. That is the first order of business now. And Hopefully, if we get to a point and we get through this crisis, we're really able to sit down and say, how can we prevent ourselves from ever coming so close to potential nuclear war and Armageddon as we have right now? And that's when we bring the best and the brightest minds together to really solve this problem of nuclear threat once and for all. I think that there are uh, two distinct generations when it comes to nuclear threats. There are those, uh, Dave, I think your generation remembers doing those uh, nuclear bomb drills in school and it was a real right. threat. It was it was very scary. We liken it to the threats we face today with climate change and, and all of that and active shooters for kids today. But back then it was nuclear weapons. And I'm curious for the generation today who didn't have those drills, do we have more nuclear weapons today? Is the threat higher today or is it not as bad as it seems in the news headlines? Well, you're absolutely right in that it's a very different time that we're in now than at the height of the whole war with the uh, nuclear weapons uh, duck and cover drills. Um, and I think now we actually have far fewer nuclear weapons than we did at the height of the Cold War. So, at that point, there were between 60 and 70,000 nuclear weapons, the vast majority, over 90%, possessed by the US and the Soviet Union. Mm. And at the end of the Cold War, we managed to engage in mutually beneficial action in negotiations and agreements to reduce the weapons now to around 13,000. Oh. So that's dramatically down. It is dramatically but, down. 13,000 yeah, still a lot. That still is enough to destroy the world several times over, right? Yeah, but progress. But, Right. So if we all of those nuclear weapons were used and even a fraction of those nuclear weapons would use, we would change civilization as we know it. So 13,000 is still far too high. And the problem is for the first time now, we are seeing a trajectory of countries increasing their number of nuclear weapons that's projected over the next decade. So we're really at an inflection point. And what we do now in response to Putin threatening to use nuclear weapons to invade a sovereign country, what we do in response is going to be consequential for our future safety and security and making sure that we take everything down many notches so that we're not dealing with this kind of threat again. Okay, but you see why nuclear weapon use or the attempt to acquire nuclear weapons is going up because if, if Ukraine had had a viable nuclear force... Would Russia have invaded? I mean, that's the that's the thinking of these countries. I think is Iran is probably thinking the same thing. The reason Iraq got invaded and not Iran is that Iran has, a, I guess, a better nuclear weapons threat, to put it that way, than than Iraq did. And uh, how do you get around that? Yeah, I think if we look at Ukraine, it's a little bit of a misnomer to say that if Ukraine had kept its nuclear weapons, it would have prevented invasion by Russia. It really didn't have the option of keeping its weapons. The arsenal it had really did belong to Russia. They were controlled from Moscow. And 
really the United States and Russia would never have allowed Ukraine to have kept its nuclear weapons at that point when it um, gave it up. There are some people who argue that Russia would have invaded Ukraine far earlier to um, take back its nuclear weapons. But the fact remains that for many, uh, nuclear weapons really are perceived to bring about a certain amount of power. You know, we see what Putin's done even without detonating a nuclear weapon, right? So he has threatened to use them and we've seen him able to invade a sovereign country, war crimes, impact the global economy. So it's incumbent upon the US and uh, the international community to be able to make sure that the lesson from this crisis is not that nuclear weapons are beneficial to either invade other countries or to prevent invasion yourself, um, but that nuclear weapons are seen as the liability that they are that bring us all much closer to potential for something to go wrong. We worry about miscalculation, misunderstanding, and uh, use of nuclear weapons by accident. Even one done by accident could then spiral into a nuclear war and Armageddon, as President Biden has warned about recently. Emma Belcher, the president of the Plowshares Fund. More with her and the roles that China and India play in all of this in the second part of our interview at 8.15 this morning. Time for your daily dose of kindness, brought to you by Baird. TikTok influencer Isaiah Garza is driven to help others through random acts of kindness. And he told CBS's David Begno about why he feels called to give away money, shelter, and everything in between. Thank you, sir. This is one of the best days of my life. Every day, Garza lends a helping hand to strangers, and a lot of them are homeless. I got you a brand new cell phone, sweetheart. Uh, Phones, food, clothes, money, anything that might brighten their day. To build an actual connection and a heartfelt love for a human being, it it makes me feel really good. And sometimes he gives them what they need most. I raised you guys $25,000. You guys are getting a home. You guys are no longer homeless. I got kind of like obsessed with seeing people happy and seeing the reactions on people's faces who like maybe live on the streets or are struggling, you know, because I myself as someone who struggled for so long. Garza grew up in Washington state. His parents immigrated from Mexico and he says life from the very beginning was not easy. At one point we, you know, we got our house taken from us and we had no money and we had to sell everything and we were living paycheck to paycheck and just that I was like, I'm going to find a way to get out of here and I'm going to save the day. He eventually got a scholarship to fashion school in Los Angeles, but for almost a year, he lived on the streets of downtown LA. Coming back here, it's just like facing your demon. It's just, uh, it was tough that it was tough at that time. Maybe that's why you are so comfortable. Hundred percent, hundred percent, absolutely. You know, absolutely. Yeah, I tell, I tell that to people all the time. Yeah, it's almost like a comfort level. Those tough years didn't break him. He'll tell you it made him a better person and enabled him to do what he does today so selflessly. If I didn't become homeless and struggle and suffer, I would have never have done what I'm doing today. It would have never have happened that way. What are you hoping to do next? My goal is ultimately to become one of the greatest philanthropists of my generation. I want to build schools in third world countries and I want to build my own shelter someday or shelters. I think that I was born to do this. And when you're born to do something, you're going to do it until, like, the wheels fall off. 
That is CBS's David Begno reporting. 747 and now from the G and Ursula show, which starts at nine right here in Cairo News Radio. Here's G Scott, who was on TMZ. Can you explain that, please? <laughs> we have to explain. Do we have to explain what TMZ is? <laughs> Ten Mile Zone. Oh. Hollywood scandal. Why yeah. you're in the demilitarized? Yeah. Zone? So I got hit up by TMZ Live, and they asked me to uh, weigh in on if I wanted to weigh in on a couple topics. Mm-hmm. And the, the topics were uh, James Corden, and then him being kicked out of the restaurant being rude to servers. Then there was the whole Kanye deal and what's going on with Kanye. And I told them, no, that just puts me in a bad mood when I talk Kanye. And they said, how about Travis Scott? I said, yes. And so Travis Scott right now is denying that he was cheating on Kylie Jenner. Kylie Jenner, you know, is one of the Kardashians. Travis Scott was had a uh, video shoot and someone anonymously recorded uh, a gal that was there that was not Kylie at Travis Scott's Travis at his um, video shoot. Well, it got online, got on social media, it got on the old TikTok and all that kind of stuff. And so when it got out there, then automatically Travis Scott responds and says, oh, my goodness, I don't know who this girl is. I have no idea. <laughs> and then she comes back to social media and says, oh, really? You don't know who I am. Here's the receipt. I have pictures. I have video of you and I, all this stuff. Yeah. And then he comes back and says, well, and with a picture of Valentine's Day of this year and says, if you weren't here, then you're not my lady. As if to say, like, just because she wasn't there at Valentine's Day, it's not a lady. And who's Travis Scott again? Yeah, I was going to ask yeah, I knew Dave was going to ask that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Good point. Travis Scott is a rapper, and he got really big and famous once he started. Dating, dating a, Kylie Jenner. Dating a billionaire. Uh, what is with these dudes who just can't play it cool with these billionaire women? Just take the money, <laughs> sit on the couch, and enjoy your life. And that's, They're cheating on Chloe, <laughs> Kim, Kylie. Con, where, like, just take the money, dudes. Wait, two things. What? Number one, that's exactly what I said at the end this of that soundbite. I said, now, if you if uh, if someone cheats on a billionaire that they have two kids with, ain't none of us safe. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Ain't none of us safe. So that's what I had to say about that. And by the way, you're right about just, I mean, come on now. You're with the billionaire? Chill. But if all the Kardashians get cheated on, what does that say? Yeah. Money ain't everything. <laughs> well, we all watch the show. We know that family's right. a little bizarre. Well, does TMZ pay well? Uh, yeah, you know what? They said checks in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Make sure you check. Now, speaking of the Kardashians, Kim Kardashian was once married to Kanye West. Yes. They've got like 10 children together or something. Mm-hmm. But it made me think all of this awful stuff going on with Kanye West and his anti-Semitism, which he's been doing for years, but yeah. recently got in trouble for it. Mm-hmm. You, you know, we have this whole thing going where you let Dave try on your fancy shoes, right. and one day those fancy shoes happened to be the Yay Slides the from Adidas. Slides. Right? Yeah. Thanks. And, well, and I made Andrew pull that video down because I don't want Dave associated with Yay Slides now. But what do you do? I was wondering, like, you spend a lot of money on shoes. Do you toss them now that Kanye's a problem? Uh, I just don't wear them now. Oh, yeah. I'm just. Uh, but you know what, though? Look. The good news is, is they say Adidas and they don't say anything on Kanye. That's number one. And number two, they're really, really, really comfortable. But (laughs) I want to, how about we do this? I think that there comes a time that we are all faced with a decision. For an example, do you still watch the uh, Cosby show? Mm. Something to think about. Do you still listen to Michael Jackson? Something to think about. Do you still listen to R. Kelly? 
Something to think about. Mm-hmm. We can we can do this all day long. Sometimes some of the people that we maybe have purchased items because of, they turn out to be not so good people. So what do you do in those situations? Well, I don't know. You do what you whatever you want to do, right? Don't do what other people tell you. Am I gonna go and burn my uh, Yeezy slides? No, that'd be a little dramatic. But I am. <laughs> but I am gonna give them away. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I don't so mean, you don't, yeah. Yeah, because I gonna, think too. Like, like, so somebody else can offend people. <laughs> no, I mean somebody else can make that decision for themselves. Somebody can make that decision for themselves. But I think that we're all in that situation. Even, no, this is this is what bugs me about this whole thing. What's that? Unless you spend twenty four seven watching social media, which I don't do because I find it just tedious. Mm. You have no idea who you might be offending simply by know, the clothes you choose to wear. Not Generation. Very, very ridiculous. No, okay, because Sully's clapping. Dave, I get it. Sully, you guys aren't in the trenches like G and I are with social media and pop culture and stuff. But why do you need to be? Yeah. Because in this like, generation, that's like a commodity. That. Knowing that knowledge, being up on things, being on social media, it's part of socializing now. And so we can't avoid these types of topics or we lose social capital within our generation. So I get why you feel that way, yeah. but you can't discount it as invaluable to overall knowledge just because you don't. Social capital used to just be like talking to your friends and people yeah. you know, So yeah. that which I still enjoy. You know what? I wish we were in yeah. simpler times, Sully, because I, I wouldn't not, be so that's stressed. That's the way I still do it. I have an, that's the way I still do it. I have an idea. Yeah. For everybody that says, oh, <laughs> social media. <laughs> how about this? How about you open up a business? And don't have social media. Right. And watch how long you last. Yeah. Yeah. Go, I get go it. ahead and do it. Because you, you, you won't last. So we can sit here and, and I'm calling, by the way, you made that and you explained that very well. Thank you. I remember my dad saying, what do you need the cell phone for? I know. What do you, what do you, what do you need the cell phone? And then before you know it, I couldn't get him off his cell phone. Right. You know what I mean? Like we could do this to we're all blue in the face. Hey, catch up, everybody. Things are moving. It's yeah. moving. Let's but you go. guys realize everybody on social media could just be lying. Right. Sure. They, could even, they might even be people. That's interesting you say that, because the majority of people that I hear lying ain't on social media. <laughs> but pow! Yeah. Let's do it! <laughs> you, can, you can be on older mediums and I, still lie. Yes. I feel like it's Absolutely. more dangerous to lie on social media because people can catch you, whereas if you Facts. just lie and let your lies go into the ethers, right? you're safe. I think, or I, just don't lie. Yeah. Well, I think well, the amount of lying Alright, thank you, so God. Voluminous. <laughs> like, what? I, it's not possible to catch them all anymore. Yeah. yeah. Is for lying. G with Ursula at 9 o'clock on Cairo News Radio, Seattle's Morning News. And more now from our conversation with Emma Belcher, the president of the Plowshares Fund. Plowshares Fund goal is eliminating the threat of nuclear weapons worldwide. So I wanted to ask her about these smaller so-called tactical nuclear weapons in Russia's arsenal. There's often a misunderstanding about what they are. People think that they're small. Now, tactical nuclear weapons can have a very low yield um, and they can have a very high yield. And it's really the way in which you're using the nuclear weapons that uh, means uh, they could be determined or defined as tactical or strategic. Now, in terms of the range of tactical nuclear weapons, there are some that would be the same size as a Hiroshima or Nagasaki Mm. size yield of 15 kilotons. Now, that might be small compared to the massive thermonuclear weapons that um, that we have today, but they're hardly very small and the destructive power is enormous. So it's important to keep in mind that the use of a tactical nuclear weapon by Russia 
isn't going to be just a small sort of um, thing that nobody is 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 going to really have to have to worry about. You know, this is hugely consequential. A nuclear weapon has not been used uh, in uh, over seventy years, and. If he used this, it would be really breaking the taboo against use. So a huge big deal. Now, you asked me about what the options are in terms of if Putin were to use a nuclear weapon. So it's going to vary in terms of what size yield he might use, how he might use it. Is it a demonstration uh, detonation over the Black Sea somewhere or is it use of a nuclear weapon against um, Ukrainian military uh, installation? Uh, or is it the use of a nuclear weapon against a civilian facility? And we've certainly seen Putin target civilians uh, in this war so far with conventional means. So there are a range of responses. I think the worst thing the United States could do is respond with a nuclear weapon because that would be catastrophic in terms of then escalating and uh, likely resulting in uh, retaliatory strikes from um, uh, Russia with a nuclear weapon, spiralling into nuclear war and Armageddon. So not only would it be devastating, but it'd be counterproductive. It wouldn't achieve our aims. So the best thing the US could do is respond um, by uh, increasing um, crippling sanctions in a way we haven't been able to do so far. You'd have China and India. You'd want to corral them to help with the sanctions. And I do believe they don't see Putin using a nuclear weapon as in their interest. I do believe they would be willing to come to the table on crippling sanctions there. You'd want to do launch cyber attacks to make sure that Russia couldn't really be operating its military. You'd also consider conventional strikes using conventional weapons. But each one of these options conventionally um, raises a certain risk that you might get retaliation and escalation from Putin that gets out of control. So the three options here conventionally would be to provide Ukraine with more conventional uh, materials, different kinds of systems we haven't provided so far so they could uh, attack Russia. The US might also launch a conventional attack against Russian forces inside Ukraine, or it might also use conventional forces to strike a military target inside Russia. Now, all of these, they are kind of higher level responses each time, um, but they come with their risks of things getting out of control. So the challenge here that's critically important is we must support Ukraine and get a favourable outcome to this situation, but without pushing Russia into the position where it feels it has to use its nuclear weapons, it's got no option. And we need to send a signal to everybody else watching that nuclear weapons use is completely unacceptable. This may or may not be a short answer, but given where Putin is today and considering the past and his motivations and his war in Ukraine, is he more capable today of using those nuclear weapons than ever before? Well, that's a hard question to answer because I can't get inside mm-hmm. Putin's head. But we know him well. We've, we've been yeah. adversaries with him for decades. We know his moves and he's never 
made that move before, but it seems more than any time in the past, he's in a very desperate, cornered situation. Well, and I think the problem is that we are seeing a Putin who is increasingly making what we might consider irrational decisions. Mm -hmm. So his decision to invade Ukraine in the first place, thinking that Kiev would topple pretty easily, uh, that didn't pan out. Uh, He also thought that um, this would divide the US and NATO that didn't pan out either, and the response uh, has been real unity. And so I think the concern here is that we are banking on Putin being a rational actor and making the calculation that launching a nuclear weapon isn't in his interest. Hopefully that logic's going to hold, and that's why you see um, President Biden and uh, others really out there sending messages both to uh, the Kremlin privately but also um, publicly to say, if you use a nuclear weapon, it will be catastrophic for Russia. So trying to send that signal that you you must not do this or the consequences will be dire. Now, we just have to hope that Putin takes that and hears it and doesn't act in a way um, that potentially is self-destructive and really destructive for the rest of the world. So far, the United Nations seems to have been completely ineffective. Is there anything else that it could do? It's really challenging because this is the type of crisis for which the uh, United Nations uh, needs to be able to respond And what we're seeing here is obviously with Russia as uh, one of the permanent five members of the Security Council, um, there are real constraints here. But I think the 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 sentiment that we've seen and the expressions um, from uh, the General Assembly and countries within the United Nations uh, have been right. Um, And I think what we'll have to do is think about um, what happens after this crisis? Because this is a big challenge to international norms um, that have really been developed since the end uh, of World War II and that the United Nations is is championing. What does it mean to have a permanent five-member invade another country uh, with the nuclear threat? And how can we say it is unacceptable um, to be uh, damaging um, and flouting these norms? We'll kick them off the Security Council. Can that be done? Well, I think there are a lot of people probably looking right now to see how that could be done, but I think it's very complex. The power structures as they are today, with Russia being a permanent five member of the Security Council, make that seem, you know, quite challenging to say the least. Emma Belcher is the president of the Plowshares Fund. Uh, thank you. You have a you have a tough job. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate the opportunity to talk about this issue and just know that at Plowshares, we are really corralling the best and the brightest in this scary time to solve these problems so that we don't keep coming to the brink of nuclear uh, Armageddon ever again. Emma Belcher is the president of the Plowshares Fund. Thank you. You have a you have a tough job. Thank you. You can ring my bell. Ring the bell. Seattle's Morning News. Good morning. I'm Colleen O'Brien along with Dave Ross, Chris Sullivan, and Rachel Bell is here with the newest trend of swimming in frigid water. And how you feel wonderful, like your skin is tingling and you just feel fabulous. Just before sunset, Jessica Cohen emerged from Puget Sound onto a small Seattle beach where she often meets with friends to swim. It's called cold water swimming. I call it reconnecting with nature. And we go into the sound all year round, in the summer, in the winter, in the snow, in the rain. 
hell was not a good experience. <laughs> That's Seattle's Lena Carmen. We started off at 30 seconds <laughs> and then we went up to two minutes, three minutes. And then now uh, at this time of year, I'm about 45 minutes. And in the summer, I can stay up for an hour because it's you know warmer by my standards. <laughs> cold water swimming and cold plunging into icy baths is having a moment. And people swear by the health benefits. For your mental health, you cannot come out of the water and be in a bad mood. It's just not possible. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I know people who have serious anxiety issues. And if they told me if they come every day for half an hour, they don't have to take the anxiety medicine. And also, the end of it is just the feeling of joy and gratitude. It's good for your metabolism. It's good for depression, anxiety, anti-inflammatory, kind of everything. That's Seattle cold water swimmer Kayla Galgano. Obviously, swimmers feel the benefits, but Mike Tipton, professor of physiology at the Extreme Environments Laboratory at the UK's University of Portsmouth, says there haven't been many studies done to back up the health claims. You know, it could be a placebo effect, but a placebo effect is still an effect. Uh, and if you're the person who's benefiting because you do feel great or you perceive that you haven't had a cold for a year or you perceive that the physical or mental you know, illness you had has improved, then fine, that's great. Um, as a scientist, it's slightly different in that I want to know why it's improved because if we can find out the mechanism, there may be other ways of evoking it that don't involve people going in and doing open water swimming who can't. If you found that the actual thing about going in cold water is getting cold feet, then you can get cold feet without having to go swim around in the sea. He says they'd have to prove that cold water is solely responsible for making people feel good. You haven't really isolated the active ingredient because when you go open water swimming, you do lots of other things. You meet people, you go to a beautiful place, you immerse yourself in a near weightless environment, you do some exercise, yes, you might get cold, you come out, you have a cup of coffee, you have a big piece of cake, any one of those things might be the active ingredient. And so until we've done the studies, we can't truly say that it's cold water swimming that is providing the benefit. The women I spoke to inadvertently supported Mike's theory. The camaraderie between women, which is really nice. There's a huge connection with the nature. Like I've had a few really close encounters with seals, which is super nice. Being in there is just so beautiful and so incredible that by the time you're out, you're just grateful. I think it shocks your system, so you kind of get out of your head. Mike is all for the practice, but warns people to be careful. If we're talking below mid-60 Fahrenheit, uh, 10 minutes is as much as you want. And actually, the evidence suggests that actually it's probably the first two or three minutes that's probably doing all the beneficial things. After about 15 minutes in 50-degree water, for example, become physically incapacitated. Mike says the trend isn't new. Ancient Greek physician Hippocrates, Thomas Jefferson, and Darwin all swore by it. That's incredible. But a few things, yeah, that they point out that it it could be just that you're breathing fresh air, you know, those deep breaths to get yourself psyched up to be in the water. That can be just as calming as a cold water plunge. I heard the same is true for like infrared saunas and saunaing mm. that it's really like the first 10 minutes. That's all the benefit you're going to get. Any longer than that is just, you know, your body's sweating. There so. could also be like the daredevil factor with this that you just feel I can't believe that I'm doing this because all the women said the same thing. Like, like, oh, I never thought I could do this. And then I did it for 30 seconds. I never thought I would do it year round for a half an hour. So I think there's something that 
energizes you. But no doubt being cold makes you go, woo. Yeah. And, and I think the theory could be right that you're so cold that you're not in your head thinking about stuff. You're very in the moment, which is a proven method of feeling better is yeah. to be in the moment, not even, worrying about the past and the future. Yeah, I've seen influencers doing this cold water plunge swimming trend, yeah. but they just take a big bowl of iced water and plunge their face yes. in it yeah. to pull themselves out of depression or an anxiety attack. And another tip that, of course, you just did that feature on, don't believe influencers on TikTok about mental health trends, <laughs> where uh, drinking iced water also can cool you from the core and that has calming effects. So, Interesting. I know. It's like whatever works for you, whatever makes you feel good, do it, you know, as long as you're not hurting anyone else. Well, I was curious if there was something evolutionary about it because, of course, it's been a very short time that we have access to heating water, right. you know, for baths and things like that. And I was wondering if it was built into the human body to have access to cold water, that this is on purpose, like you're going to be bathing in cold water and that's going to make you feel good. Interesting. Like a built-in antidepressant or something. Right. When I got my uh, 23andMe Ancestry report back and I am just all Northern European, just Scandinavian and all those countries up there, it made me wonder, like, why do I like the rain and winter and fall and cold weather and why doesn't it bother me? Maybe it's because ancestry-wise, like that's where a lot of my genetics is based in colder climates. But you also grew up here in the rainy place, so is it nature or nurture? All right. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News, the podcast. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. You can find our podcast weekday mornings right at 930. And if you subscribe, you will never miss the Daily Dose of Kindness.